right, good morning, everybody. Glad you guys are here. Glad to have a little bit of a lower key walk-up music. The, the early service, it was a little more energetic than I had. Made me tired just to listen to it, so no, not quite that bad. But hey, welcome. Glad that you guys are here. Um, you out there online, whenever, wherever, just so glad that you guys are here. It's great to see some faces we haven't seen in a little while. Um, new friends, old friends back in, and our family. It's just an awesome thing. I love seeing that. So um, welcome all of you. If you missed any of our previous series leading up to this, go back to our website and check it out. You can get it through YouTube or you can go to our website, which is just discovercommunity.church and you can watch on or click on the watch now and it will bring up the archives of all of our uh, other messages. We're in the Gospel of Mark. We've been there for a little while. Um, and every single time I study a section, I'm like, well, I've I've studied that before, so in my mind, I kind of have where we're going. Like, no, that's not it. Pretty much every single week, I just give it up to the Lord, and I say, wherever, wherever you want to take this, wherever you want to lead me in this, and however you want me to teach it, show me that, and we'll go. So oftentimes on a weekend, I am as surprised as you where the message ends up. Um, but I think that's a good thing. Talking about our Wednesday night service, um, I'm not sure who asked about streaming it on Wednesday night, but Wednesday night's going to be an opportunity. I'm actually going to teach the next weekend service, so that'll be your first opportunity to hear that if you come to a Wednesday night service. So if we decide that we live stream, now we need at least two more volunteers to run the, the streaming part of it and all that, so uh, then it starts to get away from, from the simplicity that we're looking for. So um, that's your reward for coming on Wednesday nights. You, you'll, be able to, you'll be able to hear the message early. Um, so let's get right into it. Um, I don't know why I had this urge to say, anybody have any questions, but no, <coughs> raise your hand if you have any questions. We'll do that later. Let's get into the message. If you were with us last week, um, we taught about Jesus and the 12 feeding the 5,000. Remember that very, very little known section of scripture. Not many people have heard about that one kind of obscure, kind of like the one we're going to talk about today. Today we're going to talk about, it's in Mark, Mark 6, 45 to 56, which is Jesus walks on water. Okay, I know nobody's ever heard a teaching on that before, but I think the Lord showed me something um, that he wants for us today. So we're going to kind of teach it through that lens. Now, last week, um, last week again, Jesus and the disciples feeding the 5,000, they had been traveling around the Galilee just doing miracle after miracle. But again, get your mind back in this place of where they were. The, the disciples had been walking around, teaching, healing, driving out demons, anointing with oil, doing all these things. And then they had come back to report to Jesus. And they were probably looking forward to a, a well-earned rest, but the Lord had other things in mind. So immediately they get in a boat, they head across to the other side, of the Sea of Galilee to this region called Bethsaida. And again, thinking when they got there, okay, this is where we're going to rest. This is where we're going to have something to eat. This is where we can recharge. Immediately, if you remember, he was met at the shore with a bunch of people, and he felt compassion and just immediately started preaching to them, started teaching them. And the disciples, again, had to wait for gratification that they needed. But they got to be a part of this miraculous provision as, as Jesus spiritually fed them. They got to be a part of 
physically feeding them, taking care of their needs through this miraculous provision of the fishes and loaves being multiplied. Now you would think when that's done, if you remember from the scripture, it said, and and it was getting late, right? It was already getting late. And that's why they said, well, send them home to get something to eat. But Jesus had another plan. So we know that it's late, whatever late amounts to at that time, it's getting late. And when it's all said and done, if you were one of the disciples, you'd have to be going, okay, now we get to rest. Now we get to eat for ourselves. We don't know if at what point they got to eat during that evening, but it's been a long day. It's been a long series of days, but the ministry of the Lord, when there's work to be done, Jesus doesn't say now's the time to rest. He rests at the appropriate times, but we're going to find out this long day is just about to get longer. So, again, we're going to talk about Jesus walks on water. The point of this of this section, again, you can. I love about scripture is it can it can speak to you in so many different ways. You can read the very same story, the very same parables, the very same verses, and have them speak to you differently in a season that you need that different thing. And so my job is always to seek the Lord's voice and say, what do you want me to pull out of this? What is for our family, for our congregation today? And what what I think he highlighted to me is just this idea that we so often put Jesus and the abilities of God in a box. Now, when I, as soon as I say that, that's church speak, right? Anybody ever say, we, we put Jesus in a box, what does that mean? If you're new to the Lord or you haven't been in church very much, you might be hearing that and going, I don't know what that means. I hear it in church, but whatever, whatever it means. What it means is that we have this set of, of parameters that we think that the Lord operates within. And anything outside of that is outside of the box. And what we're going to see here is that the disciples, even having been a part of all this great stuff that's going on, they still defaulted to kind of putting Jesus in a box, even though they were firsthand witnesses. That's what we're going to talk about today. So let's jump into this. So again, we know that they fed the, fed the 5,000. It was already late. Then they fed them. Then they did some more teaching. Then they picked up the scraps, kind of cleaned up after themselves. And you would think the very next thing is, and then they rested. That's not how it worked. The very first two words of Mark 6.45 says, and immediately, okay, and immediately Jesus had his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself dismissed the crowd. We have to look at that a little bit more closely because that can be something that's really confusing, and rightly so. Number one, again, it's been a long day. It's about to get longer. Jesus is sending them ahead, so he's not going with them. Can you imagine if you were one of them, like, are you coming later? Are you going to hitch a ride? How, how are you going to get to this other place? So that would have been their mindset. But where does your mind go? Probably similar to what mine did, if you're paying attention, where it says, they went to the other side to Bethsaida. Wait a minute, weren't they already in Bethsaida? Isn't that where they fed the 5,000? That can be one of those things that causes confusion. And confusion leads to either doubt or division or arguments. So anytime I see something like this, I like to take a couple minutes and let's make this clear. Let's talk about it. Now, whether we understand it fully or not, 
let's at least discuss it a little bit. I don't want it to be a point where like, okay, is Mark wrong? Is Mark wrong when he says, okay, they're in Bethsaida, we heard that, but then now he's saying they go across to Bethsaida. How does that work? Is it a contradiction? What's going on here? Seriously hotly debated in theological circles, right? You see it all the time. Just Google that idea and you will see all kinds of different opinions. And a lot of the opinions center on, well, Mark was confused. Mark didn't know the region as well. He was a little bit confused on where they were and when they were going. Does that make sense to anybody hearing my voice? No. It doesn't get into Scripture because somebody was confused. Oh, bless their heart. They got it wrong. That's not how it works. Every word that is in Scripture is there for a reason. It is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And so there's no contradictions and there's no errors. Everything the Bible speaks on is true and correct and inerrant. And this is no difference. It always comes down to our our understanding or a translational issue. Let's talk about it real quick. So when we talk about Bethsaida, there's a couple different... Actually, there's several theories. We're going to talk about just a couple of them here. One is, I'll just call it the two towns theory, okay? There's more than one place called Bethsaida. Is that possible? I think it's possible. We just look at our country. We've got Portland. How many different Portlands are there? Nashville, Springfield, Long Beach, Kansas City, Austin, Manhattan, Miami, and then worldwide there's Paris, Memphis, There's places that are named the same all over the place. And if we look at the word Bethsaida, Bethsaida literally, it's an Aramaic word, and it literally means house of fish or place of fish. It's a fishing village. Bethsaida is a fishing village. How many fishing villages surrounded the Sea of Galilee? A lot. So to say that place is a place of fish or a house of fish, it may have actually even had a different name. But they're calling it Bethsaida because that's where people fish. Over that place over there where people fish. It could have easily been that. So that's one theory. Another theory um, doesn't really have a name, but it's a translational issue. If we look at where it says to Bethsaida, that word to in Greek is pros. And pros doesn't mean that's your destination. It means you're passing by or traveling through. So it could mean that rather than that's their destination, Bethsaida, it means they're traveling through or going in that direction. Much as if in here, if I said, okay, I want you to all head for the doors when service is over. Head for the doors. Okay, you're not literally stopping at the doors. Some of you might. But the idea is you're heading through those doors out into the world to where your destination is. And we would all kind of understand that. That's sort of the idea that's going on right here. The idea would be, so picture this, after, let's see, did I have the map up here already? Or did I skip the map? I skipped the map. Let's throw the map up there. Look at that. The map's already there. I don't know how long that's been there, but that explains why nobody was looking at me. So you see they started at Capernaum, started at that area, and then they went over to this Bethsaida region where they fed the 5,000. This blue line is the Jordan. So a lot of people think that they were on the west side of the Jordan. That's where actually the feeding took place. 
But then after feeding, possibly he and his disciples went across to the other side of the Jordan. This is all still the Bethsaida region. Went across to the other side of the Jordan just for a little privacy to regroup, maybe to take a nap, maybe to eat their own dinner. And then when he's saying, go past Bethsaida, telling them where they're going, they're over here someplace and they decide they're just going to go that way. So it's past Bethsaida. You're not stopping there. It's along the way. It's all a theory. We don't know for sure. But the main reason I wanted to bring that up is because we know from Scripture, John 6.20 tells us they landed where they planned. Okay, so they weren't lost. They didn't head the wrong direction. They weren't confused. They landed where they planned, which was either Capernaum or Gennesaret, which is down here, somewhere in that region along that shoreline. That's where they were headed. Scripture tells us they, they went where they planned. They made it there. So it wasn't, none of this was a mistake. Those of you Bible nerds, and you know who they are, although I'm not making contact with you, look for, there's an article, a guy's name is Mike Lycona, L-I-C-O-N-A. Look for Mike Lycona, he's got a website called risenjesus.com. And I'm not vouching for every word that's ever on that website. However, he's got an article there, it's called, Was Mark Confused Pertaining to the Location of the Feeding of the 5,000? You can just search Mark Confused. He's got a great article on all the different, the tense of the verbs and all the different Greek and and ins and outs of what it could be. Bottom line, it's not an error on the part of Scripture. It's our understanding and our translation. It's not theologically necessary that we understand, but there's not an error that goes on here. So let's get back to Scripture. Jesus sends the 12 ahead very, very purposefully, right? It's not a mistake. He didn't miss the boat. He sent them ahead of him on purpose. Mark 6, 46. And after saying goodbye to them... He left for the mountain to pray. So he takes time again. After all that outpouring of spiritual energy, he takes time to go up and recover himself and to pray. I think there's more to the reason why he went up on the mountain. We'll see that here. Mark 6.47. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Okay, so the boat's out in the ocean in in the evening, Boat's out in the ocean, the disciples are heading the other direction, and Jesus is alone on the land. Now, they may have waited for a while thinking Jesus was going to join them. Like, do we, he said go on ahead, but does that mean stop at the boats, or does that mean literally leave? How's he going to get over there? How's he going to find us? Who knows what they thought or what they delayed, but bottom line, they weren't making good progress. John 6.19 tells us specifically, they were only three to four miles out into sea. They hadn't made an awful lot of headway. It was slow going. They would be tired. It was already late in the evening. We know that. Mark 6, 48, seeing them straining at the oars, Jesus either saw them in the spirit or he could physically see them because he was up on the mountain. Now, it would have been dark, so maybe there was moonlight. We don't know. Seeing them straining at the stores for the at the oars for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Fourth watch. Fourth watch is about three a.m. Okay, so this is early in the morning or late at night, depending on how you. It would have been dark, pitch black, except for maybe some moonlight. Maybe they had a lantern in the in the boat. 
I love that last verse, and he intended to pass by them. You ever think about that? Instead of, he knew what they needed. He was up there, he saw them, again, either in the spirit or physically, he saw them and he's like, they're not making good progress, they need me. He knew that they needed help, but instead of going, I'm going to go rescue them, it says he intended to walk by them. He's going to walk by, make sure they see him, they can cry out to him for help or not, but it needs to be their choice. He knows what they need. This is one of those things where I look at it and go, he totally has a sense of humor. Because can you imagine in the middle? Well, let me show you a picture. Here's, a, here's just a painting. This is kind of what it would have looked like, except for that there would have been 12 in the boat. So the boat's not a whole lot larger than that, though. And they're traveling across to the other side. And here comes Jesus. <laughs> What's going on, guys? How are things? And they're over there, and the waves are tossing them around, and they're straining against the oars. But he wasn't going to them. He intended to walk on by. That's an interesting thought. Think about that. Mark 6.49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, meaning their first impulse wasn't to cry out to him. They were scared. It was a ghost. Now, this isn't, this isn't so out of character for who they are. In that culture, the idea of demons and, and dark and evil spirits wandering the ocean or being in the depths, that was a part of their culture and had been for a long, long time. See, this was a, they didn't expect to see Jesus there. This was a new miracle. Remember, they had traveled around, driven out demons, anointed with oil, healed people. They'd seen Jesus calm the seas before. So all that they had seen, but this was something new. They didn't expect, and their minds are like, well, how is Jesus going to make it out to the boat? How is he going to make it with us? It never occurred to them that he could walk on water. This was a new miracle for them. So they didn't see it and go, oh, here comes Jesus. They were actually scared. Now, thousands of years before, literally 2,000 years before this happened, give or take, Job, remember Job in our series, our hero, Job, he prophesied about this idea. Job 9.8 says, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He knew that this was going to work and that Jesus would have dominion over the sea, over the physical properties of bread and fish to multiply them, calming storms. That's what dominion looks like. He can do anything, but they didn't have the full picture of what that was. Or later on, the writer of Proverbs, now this is about seven, this is more modern writing for them, but about 700 years old at that time. Proverbs 30, verse 4 says, Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. 700 years before Jesus, that was written. What an incredible picture of a sovereign Lord. A sovereign God sending his son what is his name or his son's name? Who can gather the wind in his fists. I love this. But that, even though the disciples could have, maybe should have known those scriptures, this idea throughout Jewish history, the depths were always a scary place. They were a place of chaos. There were sea monsters lived. It was a scary place. Another 
often overlooked or little known scripture, Genesis 1 verse 2, and the earth was formless and desolate emptiness and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. That is a picture of the spirit of God hovering over, having dominion over the chaos that lies below. That's one of those pictures, again, an image that I just love. From the very beginning, the earth was formless, chaos, this picture of chaos, and and the Spirit of God hovers over the surface of it, making order and putting order to it all. Mark 6, verse 50, for they all saw him. Now, let's go back to 49. But when they saw him walking walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. Verse 50, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Three powerful words, tiny little words, it is I. There are no other combination of words that I am aware of that can calm fears like anything else. It's also fun to note that while you read the Gospels and they oftentimes have different versions of the way things were said or some of the words or different things. The stories are the same, but sometimes the the wording is a little bit different. All three, Matthew, Mark, and John, all use the exact same phrase, it is I. I think there's just so much power in knowing that the presence of Jesus, that's all you need to hear. It is I, and it calms their fears. Now, I also like that it's not quite so oh, these guys were perfect. Matthew goes a little bit further in his gospel to show that Peter wasn't quite so sure. Remember that story? Matthew 14, 28 to 31. Peter responded and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And when he began to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out with his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? I love, any of you watch the Chosen series out there? If you watch the Chosen, you see this dynamic between Peter and Matthew, how it might have been. And we don't, scripture certainly doesn't say that, but you can easily picture how this strong fisherman, go-getter kind of guy, leader like Peter could have had maybe not the best relationship with Matthew. So if you think, why is Matthew the only gospel that talks about that little episode right there? I think it was Matthew saying, I want to make sure that's written down. Whereas in Mark doesn't address it. Mark doesn't address that thing with Peter because Mark, if you remember, Peter was dictating his memoirs or his message to Mark. And Mark wrote that down. So Peter's like, let's just skip that part. So human. I love that. I love that. Now, Mark 6, verses 51, 52. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. Stop right there. He got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. Amazing. But they had seen that before. They had seen Jesus be able to calm the waves before. And they were utterly astonished. Why? 52 explains that, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It's like after seeing all this, you didn't learn anything from the incident with the loaves, the feeding, the multiplication. You didn't connect 
that I was sovereign over all of creation, that I had very power over the physical properties of things. I could multiply things. I can calm storms. It didn't even occur to you that I could walk on water? Really? If that's not an incident of somebody putting Jesus in a box. We've seen all these amazing things, but we haven't seen that. So I don't know if he can do that. That word hardened, by the way, when we go where it says their hearts were hardened. We're not talking Pharaoh hardened where he was actually in opposition. The word hardened is a Greek word, pororo, and it means literally to be dull and unperceptive. It adds as a rock. (laughs) Dull and imperceptive, lacking sensitivity or spiritual perception. It's not that they didn't know, but it's that they should have known. You saw all these things, and yet somehow you draw the line on something I can do? Now, we know Jesus had already calmed the storms once. Again, Mark 4 talked about that. But these guys didn't learn much watching all that happen. And that specific thing they should have learned is that all natural forces, everything in heaven and earth was subject to Jesus and his sovereignty. We talk about that box. There's nothing that's outside the box for Jesus. These guys were surprised because they were limiting Jesus to just what they had seen before. I've seen him do that, so I know he can do that. How much like that is all of us? We see that in Scripture. Okay, here's how it works. We're going to see here in a minute how it works also. I've seen him do this, and he did that when I did this. So therefore, every time I do this, he's going to do that. That's how it works. If you've been following along at all, you know that Jesus goes, no, 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 no. That's not how that works. It works because I say it works, not because you see a formula and you repeat that formula. But these guys are no different. That's what they're doing. Now, they travel across. They make it to the destination they had intended. Mark 6, 53, when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored at the shore. This area, Gennesaret, um, it's known for being extremely fruitful. It's a very fertile land. Uh, It's actually the very shore where Jesus called Peter into ministry. Very sure, and actually I have a picture of Genesaret, modern Genesaret today. No cell towers, but this is, this is today. It's a fertile plain. You can see where it is. They would have moored down at the, at the shore, and then they travel inland to begin doing ministry. This is, this is Genesaret today. <coughs> now, Jesus, it says that Jesus receives a proper reception here. Mark 6, 54, 55 And when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. Again, no secret. You know the disciples weren't having a whole lot of sleep last night after they were straining at the oars and trying to make it across the ocean. Finally, they get to the other side. Again, like, okay, now we can rest. No. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that entire country and began carrying here and there on their pallets those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. That last little phrase, wherever they heard he was, just tells you that he wasn't left alone. Wherever he went, people were like, he's over here, and the crowd would gather around. Again, no no rest. But Jesus had been there before. Again, it's the exact place where Jesus called Peter into ministry. Read Luke 5 if you want to see about that. 
But he wasn't going to be alone. Mark 6.56, whenever he entered villages or cities or a countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplace and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. Listen to that. They might just touch the fringe of his cloak. Again, how, how much of a program is that? We heard the woman with the blood was cured simply by touching his cloak. That's the secret. We have to go up and touch his cloak. And that's what, now in his mercy, he's like, okay, that's not how this works, but I'm, you're coming to me in faith. And wherever they, uh, and all who touched it were being healed. So he didn't withhold his blessing just because they were trying to make it a program, but that's not how it worked. But that's certainly, the, again, the human nature. That's the last story we heard is that this is how it works. That's what we're going to do. So can you imagine the commotion that is causing traveling around that region, people coming to him and all that kind of stuff? We're going to find out next week when we start chapter 7 that word gets back to Jerusalem about this part, and now the Pharisees have to come, and there's another confrontation to come. That's it for this section of Scripture. Let's put some sense to this. This story is meant to be twofold. One, a lesson for the twelve then. But then also, there's so much that we can take away from this today. So let's look at this. Remember, the 12 had just just returned from performing miracles in Jesus' name. He had given them the limited commission to go out and do those things in his name. It was before Pentecost. They didn't have the Holy Spirit, so not every believer in Christ had that. This was the 12 commissioned by him to go out and perform things in his name. And that's what they did. So they saw that happen, preaching, healing, driving out demons, this multiplication of God's provision, all these things. And wouldn't you think it would be tempting for them to start going, I did that. Look at all I was able to do. Sure, Jesus gave me the power, but I'm the one that did it. Wouldn't it be tempting? Scripture doesn't tell us that, but isn't that just human nature? Wouldn't we all kind of do that to some extent? I think we would, and it would almost be hard to blame them. Like he didn't, Jesus wasn't holding their hand. He sent them out, and they went out, and they did these things. But now, when they're in the ocean, they're straining against the oars, and they are not making good progress. They're, this situation where their strength and their expert seamanship, because remember, they were fishermen. They, they were used to being out in the ocean, but it wasn't getting the job done. They weren't making progress. And so what was their response? To strain at the oars harder. I'm not getting anywhere, so what I'll do, I'll double down and I'll work harder. That's exactly what these guys are doing right here. Do you catch yourself doing that ever? Let me tell you how that worked with me. In our membership meeting, I put out one of the things, we're looking for a new permanent home for Discover, right? Whether it's here and God provides, fantastic. If we move to another piece of real estate, that's great. But you know how my mind works? My mind is like, okay, well, I've got a meeting with a realtor on Monday, and we'll, we'll look at some things, and then I'm going to drive around, and I'm going to look at properties, and I'm going to call connections I have, and I'm going to try, and I'm, going to, I'm just going to try, and I'm going to try, and I'm going to try, and I'm going to try harder, and I'm going to keep trying until, until something happens. What this is telling me is stop straining against the oars and just come to me. I will help you. And so when I'm faced with that situation where my own just trying harder isn't getting it done got to stop and just cry out to Jesus. Do you think these guys, as they were in the boat and they're not making headway, do you think they ever thought of turning around? Like, look, we just go back to shore. We could be back to shore in five minutes with this wind in our backs. 
let's just do that. We don't know if they did or not, but I do know this. If they had, they would have missed the miracle. If they would have given up when things were hard, they would have missed the miracle. But in the middle of that, in the middle of not making any progress and being tired and wet and cold in the middle of the night and all that, they cried out to Jesus when they saw him. They would have missed that miracle. So the lesson, our takeaway is several. Number one, don't get too full of your own abilities. Okay, through, through giving our hearts to Jesus, inviting him into our hearts, making him our Lord and Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, you receive the gifts of the Spirit. And through that, we can do everything that Jesus did and more. Scripture tells us that. Don't get too full of your own abilities because without him, you can do nothing. The air in your lungs, the strength in your bones, the blood in your veins, the gifts that you have, both physical and spiritual, that all comes from God. It is all a gift from God. And without him, without being attached to him, we can do nothing. Being connected. See, all they needed is this reminder. There's Jesus. Let's cry out to him. And immediately the waves are calmed. And they make it where they're going. The same thing is exactly true with us. John 15, verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me... You can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away like a branch and dries up. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Remain in him. If your translation may use the word abide instead of remain, abide is totally one of those church words. What does abide mean? We're going to talk about that in a second. Remain and abide here, same word. The reward for abiding in him is great. John 15, 7 and 8, the next two verses. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That phrase, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, is so overused and abused. It is so overused and abused. In context right there, The reason, number one, you have to remain in him, be in him, abide in him, live in him, know his voice, seek his voice, hear his voice, ask for what you wish after having heard his voice. Ask for what you wish, and it will be done for you. Why? To help you, to glorify you, to give you comfort and peace? says right here, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's why. So if you're asking for a new Ferrari so that you can point to your neighbors and go, see what I got? I got news for you. That scripture, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. That is not going to work out. The dictionary definition of the word abide is to accept or act in accordance with, fill in the blank, Without objection. That's what abide means. And then the second meaning, to remain in place indefinitely. Isn't that the true version of what abiding in Christ is? Number one, I agree with him without reservations. And I will be in him indefinitely. That's exactly what that's teaching us. The Gospel of John actually gives us, not the Gospel, I'm sorry, First John, 
gives us the clearest definition of how this works. 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. Listen to this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. That's pretty straightforward, right? Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Verse 5, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we're in him. Verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That is very simple. That's what it means to abide in him, to act the way he would act, to act in accordance with his teachings, to learn his teachings, to live those teachings, and to remain there always. That's what that means. And so my question that I want to leave you with is this. Are you bearing fruit in your life that gives glory to God? And if not, could it be that you're just straining at the oars like these guys were? Only by abiding in Christ will we prove that we are his disciples and by that give glory to God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Your word that is that is so sharp. It's able to penetrate deep into our hearts and give us the truth. But your word, though unchanging, speaks to us in different ways. And Lord, help us to see those places where we have just tried harder in our lives, where we have used the gifts, the skills, the talent, the strength, the things that you have given us, where we've just tried harder to make something happen. And we're seeing very little progress. Lord, help us to see those times as where we need to not try harder, but we need to cry out to you. We need to cry out to you and we need to be attached to you. We need to be in you. And through that, you will take care of those things. Let us not be prideful of our own abilities, of our own station, of the things that we can do, but let's give you glory and your Father glory by saying, without him, I am nothing. Help me to set aside those prideful statements. And Lord, I repent of any time that I have done that. Pointed at something and said, look what I did, even in my own heart. Lord, I pray you show us those times, those places in our lives where we are straining against yours and making no progress. And let that be a reminder to us that rather than to strain, we need to cry out to the one who can calm the storm with a word. We need to cry out to the one who has dominion over the entire heavens and earth, all the laws of nature. You created the laws of nature. They don't bind you. You created them. Father, help us to not put you in our box of things we think you can do and things we think we should do. Let it all be done for your glory and through your power and through your strength. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, guys, we're going to take communion right now. If you're out there online, grab your elements in-house here. We have at the crosses, we have bread and juice and crackers. You can serve yourself out there if you'd like. Pastor Gabe and I will be up front here and we have wine and we would serve you up there if you want to be served. But let's take this. Also at the crosses, by the way, we have the little single serve cups. If you don't like fingers in your food, we have that out there for you too. We want to make it easy for you to do this because as a follower of Jesus, we're commanded to do this all the time, constantly. And it's not something like you just need to do this every time because I said so. By doing that, by taking communion together, 
We are celebrating what Jesus did for us. We are accepting what he did on the cross, his atoning work on the cross, his giving us the Holy Spirit by which then we can live a life on this earth that is glorifying to him. Salvation is wonderful. That is an end gift. That is there and then. But right now today, we can be thankful that through his spirit, we can navigate this world in a way that gives all glory to God. And it's only by his spirit. When we take communion together, we are saying yes. Thank you for what you did. I accept the challenge to live in you, to be in you. And by that, they will know that I'm your disciple. That's what it means when we take communion together. So let's worship. Don't just head for the doors. I promise you this back in worship set is amazing. It is so spirit-led in the way that it fills in this message. So stick around, worship with us. You can pray. We have a prayer team in the back. Look for a lanyard. They'd be happy to pray with you. And let's just celebrate what the Lord has done in our lives. Amen? Thank you, guys.